Welcome to Sliding Doors, the podcast that delves into the decisions and moments that shape our lives. I am Jenny Becker, and throughout my life, career and relationships, I've always been fascinated with the notion that everything happens for a reason, alongside my love for the 90s movie classic, Sliding Doors. Have you ever really thought about those moments that shaped your life? Those decisions that could have gone either way in the opportunities presented to you? What if you had taken that job? or told that person in high school how much you like them. Each episode, I will talk to some amazing people from all walks of life and chat about their sliding doors moments. We will reflect on how a decisional moment changed the course of their lives and how things might have looked if they had never happened. Worried you'll need to babysit your robot vacuum? Think again. Meet Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum with AI-powered navigation to recognize and avoid over 100 objects. It's the winner of five Best of CES awards. And Digital Trends says it boasts almost all the same features as robot vacuums that cost twice as much. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. My guest today is Simon Rimmer. Simon is a chef and co-presenter on Channel 4's Sunday Brunch and a chef and owner of 19 restaurants over the UK. Born in Merseyside, Simon started out his career studying fashion and textiles before he taught himself to cook and became a chef and then restaurateur. His first restaurant, Greens, was quickly described as one of the most exciting restaurants in the UK and went from strength to strength, now with 19 others to his name, and he continues to cook in his restaurants every week. Simon is probably best known as the co-host of Sunday Brunch alongside Tim Lovejoy, the Sunday morning show waking up the nation with a mix of chats, current affairs, guests and food. And his talents don't stop there, as he has also published five successful books, hosts his own podcast Grilling, and has been seen on our screens on shows such as Great British Menu, Celebrity Mastermind, and in 2017 he took to the dance floor on Strictly Come Dancing. Away from television, Simon is a big football fan and he is involved with Manchester City Academy, teaching young and up-and-coming players about eating and nutrition. He also lives with his wife, Ali, and has two children. And as someone who usually asks all the questions, I cannot wait for the tables to turn and find out all about the Sliding Doors moments that have made his life so far. So welcome to Sliding Doors, Simon. Thank you, Jenny. Nice to be here. It's really great. And no one can see this, but we're both wearing pink. So definitely on Wednesdays, we wear pink today. I like it. I like the coordination. Yeah. I'm going to make sure on any future podcast I do that I coordinate with the presenter. I think it's a very, very good idea. And I'm sure you get this a lot, but 
I feel like I know you because I see you every Sunday. Do you get kind of people saying that they think they kind of know who you are and that you're friends? Yeah, it's really interesting. I think the nature of Sunday brunch is that because it is, we're in your living room for three hours on a Sunday morning and we are very laid back. And yeah. interestingly, one of the home economists that I work with, she always sort of says, if she does um, a cookery demonstration with James Martin, then people say, oh, I'll watch your show next weekend. And with me, they'll say, I'll see you tomorrow. It's really interesting yeah. that, that kind of use of language. Because I think it's, you know, we are, hopefully, you know, the, the people do sort of feel, because we do reveal a lot about ourselves. And, you know, we probably, we're probably in people's homes when they're at the most relaxed anyway, a Sunday morning. Oh, 100%. It's like the way I start my Sunday is by having you on. And as you say, I think why it's been so successful and why you continue to do what you do is because of the relationship that you and Tim have. It's very relaxed. You're kind of, you know, it's very, you have to be very skilled and very, you know, you have to have expertise to do what you do, but you do it in such a, ref a relaxed and informed way. Well, th I think we love what we do. I mean, thank you. That's, that's really nice to say. I mean, I think that for us, we want it to be about whoever our guests are. You know, I think that it's very easy on telly that us as a, us as a partnership, as a strong partnership, you can make it about you and yeah. you just allow your guests in. We're, we're very much actively the other way, that we want the guests to kind of well, do all the hard work, really. <laughs> yeah, so that exactly. Our, so that our life is easier. A hundred percent. And when I kind of said that introduction to you and you hear everything that you've achieved so far, is this what you would have envisaged a young Simon to have be doing at this time in your life? Like, are you like, oh my God, I can't believe that's me. Or do you think this was kind of the path you were meant to be on? I think I've always been ambitious. Um, but I do, yeah, I, I suppose I do kind of listen to that and think, yeah, that's, that's quite an impressive CV, really. It's, it's, it's quite an impressive intro. Um, but I think your life is your life, isn't it? And it's only mm -hmm. if you take stock. And I suppose, interestingly, I turned 60 in May. And I think for the first time in my life, it has actually made me take stock of where mm -hmm. am I, what am I doing, who am I kind of thing. Um, and I'm, I'm relatively content with where, with where I sit in the, in the scheme of things. Yeah, no, it's a big milestone to reach. And how would you say kind of life is going for you then at 60? Do you kind of, do you feel like you're kind of living your best life? Do you feel like it's kind of brought some challenges? Like, where would you say you are? Um, I think it's quite challenging at the moment um, on, on sort of a few different levels, really. Uh, unfortunately, I lost my dad um, at the end of June and my dad was my hero. And uh, it was, I knew, you know, when it happened, it would impact me hugely. It really, really has. It's completely mm -hmm. knocked me for six. I think that, and it, it's, it's a weird thing, almost that, that kind of feeling. And there isn't such a thing as the head of the family, you know, that yeah, isn't what no. our family is like. But I think it made me realise that I think all of us, you know, my sister and cousins and um, grandkids, et cetera, we always saw my dad as the head of the family. Yeah. And it's a really strange thing that because he's gone, then I kind of feel like for no reason, a very patriarchal kind of expression, but I feel like there isn't a head of the family. And I feel, well, maybe it should be. We think, there's such a thing as head of the family. My dad wasn't head no, of the family. He was just the person it. that we all yeah. looked up to. But it's made me question um, a lot of things. And the business is challenging at the moment. You know, we're in a, mm. we're in a cost of living crisis. Um, it's, it's, it's a hard industry. So I wouldn't say that this has been my favourite year that I've mm. ever had. Um, but, you know, that's what life throws up at you. It's kind of challenges all the time. I think I'm lucky that um, in the vast majority of time, my life is pretty decent.
Yeah. And like, listen, it's all relative. And I'm really sorry to hear about your dad. And I totally get that. I think it's an odd thing that we all have. I mean, I'm 36 and still feel like I have to ask my parents permission to do things. I'm like, no, I can yeah. do whatever I want. They don't, I don't need their permission. Um, but, you know, would you say that with everything you've been through in your life so far, you're kind of drawing on experiences and things that you've learned to go through kind of tougher times and tougher years? Do you think you've had a lot of, because, you know, we've had a lot of success and a lot of failures in our lives. And do you think, as you get older, you can really kind of understand these things a bit more and put your experience to that. Yeah. And I, and I think as well, you do become less anxious about things when they're not necessarily going your way. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that one of the big things that you learn is that there are certain things that you can't control yeah. and you almost have to accept the fact that that's it. Whereas I think when I was when I was your age, then I think everything I felt like I I would get anxious and not yeah. angry but I would get completely intense about was certain things you go I can't control it I, I can't control how much gas and electric costs I can't control yeah. that all of a sudden mortgage rates are going up so you have to go right okay these are this is the reality so what's the impact it has on my life what can I do that affects it so yeah I, I think undoubtedly you know you, you draw on past experience without a shadow of a doubt definitely and you know, you've had such a brilliant career so far, especially kind of within being a chef in the food industry. Who would you say has been the most influential person in your career to date? Uh, my dad, you know, really? and again, and, uh, yeah, and I think another thing, you know, I, I would sort of say the best piece of advice that I was ever given. So my dad, my, my dad was a metallurgist um, and he always sort of said to me, I remember he said to me when I was young, he said, if I had my time again, I'd never work for anybody else. I'd only ever work for myself. Really? I've never had a job. I've only ever been self-employed from, from when I, apart from my part-time jobs, my yeah. career has always been about being self-employed. Um, and then when we started out in the business and then we started kind of growing a little bit, my dad said to me, he said, make sure that when you employ people that you give them the opportunity to succeed rather than mm. the likelihood of failure, which I, I think is a really great way to live your life full stop. And it's always stuck with me. I think it's the best piece of advice I was ever given. So he undoubtedly was, you know, the, the, the biggest influence on my career. Yeah, I love that piece of advice. That's so good. And do you think that, are you kind of trying to be that influence for your children? Like, do you kind of try and part some of your wisdom onto them? Yeah, it, 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 it's an interesting one that, because I think that my relationship with my kids is very different to my relationship with with my parents i think that's a generational thing mm-hmm. i think that you know i have a far more uh open relationship with my kids um but yeah i, I certainly think that my parents never pigeonholed me they never forced me to do anything and i've never done that um with my kids i want them to find their own way i think that yeah. um what I've tried to instill in them is to have a good work ethic and to be decent human beings, which I think, you know, they're, they're fairly nice things to have as, as people. Um, and so far, so far, so good. They're, they're doing all right. Good. No, I love that. And I think, listen, we've all kind of like, you know, especially on TV and we've all kind of seen that thinking that you have to work in, you know, if you work in a kitchen or a restaurant, the head chef's always horrible and the atmosphere is not nice. And I think you kind of, for me, as someone that shows that it doesn't have to be like, like, even with fashion and with all different industries, it's portrayed sometimes as it has to be this nasty dog eat dog environment where actually you can still succeed and be really good at what you do and be kind and a nice human being. You do. I, I think that if you're self-employed, I think there's a, there is a level of ruthlessness 
I think that mm-hmm. you that you have to have. And even if that's just a self-centered ruthlessness, not necessarily in being projecting that onto other people. But I think you have to be, you know, very, very focused all the time. And there are times when you do have to make hard decisions that you think, oh, it'd be much easier not to do this. Yeah. But the success only comes from the, the sort of single-minded nature of it. For sure, for sure. And, you know, we've spoken about how long you've been on TV for. You've obviously kind of been in our living rooms for such a long time. And I'd love to know who is the best guest that you've ever interviewed on Sunday Brunch or kind of within your TV career? But Bob Mortimer. Every really? single time, whenever I'm asked that question, yeah, I just I love that, how you have an answer straight away. It, it, well, he just he just brings something different all the time. His his mind works in a completely different way to 99.9 percent of the population. But he's funny, he's generous, and he's a really lovely human being. And he's also one of those people off screen, off camera. Yeah. He's also lovely. You know what you see is what you get. But then there's a very gentle giving side to Bob not, not that that's a mm-hmm. surprise to anybody you know he's, yeah. he's a national treasure um and I think that that's what brings it so every time he comes into the studio he'll remember things that you said to him last time you know when he was yeah. in a couple of weeks ago and you know he'd sort of heard about my dad and you know just he's just a lovely human being and he's a brilliant brilliant guest Oh, no, I fully agree. I love that. And I love, you're right, like when you can kind of have that little connection with someone and then remembering things and kind of, you know, they're not just there to promote what they're to promote. They kind of really care about what they do. And I don't know if you feel the same, but sometimes when I interview people, you know, you think it's going to go a certain way and you've prepared everything. And sometimes it can just be the absolute opposite. You know, they don't give you anything back and they don't. And do you find sometimes that happens a lot? And you're on live TV, so you can't even kind of backtrack. We're quite fortunate now, I think because we've been doing it for 17 years, that most people, if they don't know the show, it quite often happens if you've got like American guests on because they they don't know the show, but there's so much footage that they can be shown to see that the show is a very open giving show. We're not trying to catch anybody out because I think the nature of interviewing is that people have an undercurrent all the time that they think at some point an interviewer is going to try and catch them yeah, out. Yeah, 100%. Um, and, and, you know, and I think that that's what makes them reserved. I mean, I, I think the people who are sometimes the hardest for us to interview are quite often actors because mm. actors are brilliant at being them, being other people, but sometimes they're not very good at being themselves. Oh, they're very um, reserved and they, you know, yeah. they just want to keep themselves to themselves. Yeah, and I, I, I don't even know if it's necessarily that. I think it's possibly that whole thing that think, I'm not quite sure who this person is. You know, yeah. I can, you know, I can, I could, I could play Simon Rimmer. I could play Jenny, you know, I could play whoever, yeah. but they're not very good at kind of that confidence in themselves. Uh, and so sometimes you do have to draw that out of mm-hmm. people. But we're, in the main, we're, we're, we're pretty lucky um, because I think, you know, also remember that people are there for two hours before we go live. Yeah, so that's true. They already get, and we have a fantastic crew. I think that's really important to say. It's, Tim and I are just two small cogs in that machine. Mm-hmm. You know, all of the production team, all of the floor crew, they're all fantastic. They're all giving and friendly and, you know, make the whole place seem magical and, and a really nice environment to be in. Yeah, no, I think you're totally right. And I think that, you know, sometimes it is slightly harder, but it's, as you say, I think it's the atmosphere and what you guys create when people get there. And is it nice to have, you know, Tim alongside you? Do you feel like you both kind of have learned now how, you, you know, you can kind of almost telepathically know when someone needs a bit of help or needs to say something or, you know, you, you kind of can do that with each other? Yeah, we, we, you know, we are like an old married couple that, you know, where yeah. one end, the other ones begins really. Um, and we do have little sort of telltale signs. So if, 
if, say, for example, an interview isn't particularly kind of getting very exciting, we'll end up kind of interviewing ourselves, mm-hmm. you know. So you'll sort of, you'll, you'll bring each other into the interview scenario. So you end up with a three-way. So, yeah. you know, it might be, oh, you know, oh, so, so Tim, is it right that, you know, you, you, you've got a bit of an aversion to strawberries or whatever. Yeah, so, yeah. you know what I mean? So you'll take it into that route. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's the shorthand that you have in any long-term relationship is, is very invaluable. Definitely. And I'm sure it's like really ingrained in you now and you do things without even noticing. And you must have had some awful things happen to you on live TV. What would you say is the worst thing that's ever happened? But see, I quite like the worst things because people yeah, always think no, things that go yeah. wrong. And I actually think that the joy of live TV is that things go wrong. And, and I think we're human really and normal. Good. I mean, the, the one that springs to mind, and it's the only time in 17 years of doing uh, some of the weekend and Sunday brunch that we couldn't eat the food that I'd cooked. So we had Ashley Banjo was our was our guest in the kitchen, uh, and I was cooking a squid dish. And basically, you you warm some chili flakes. You you warm the oil, put the chili flakes in. Once they get warm, then you put the temperature up and you put the squid in. So I thought that I had the pan on really low, so the oil was just kind of warming up. But the pan was actually really hot, so I put the oil in and then the chili flakes. Now, if you put chili flakes into really really hot oil. It's like you've let off a, like, like you let off cyanide gas. So everybody <laughs> in the entire studio was coughing and splashing, and we had we had to go early to the break because it was it was actually impossible. We couldn't speak. It's like oh, we've been no. tear gas. The whole stream. So, and that's probably you know the the worst thing in terms of worst. Yeah. But I think it's funny. I agree. You know, I, I actually quite like the fact that. And then Ricky Gervais was on once, and I was doing this salt baked sea bass dish. The oven decided to stop working. So when I open the oven, thing it's going to be a nice crusty shell of salt that we break open for the sea bass inside. It was just raw sea bass with some salt on it. So you know, th- but things like that—they're just funny. I like them a lot. They are funny, and also it makes the audience know that you're human. We're all human. Yeah. Things go. Yeah, you can be such a brilliant chef and cook, and your you know things just sometimes don't work out. So I think it's really, and again, it's one of the magics of I think Sunday brunches is it's it's relative, and people can you know join yeah. in with you when the things go right and things go wrong. Yeah, yeah, and also people people remember them more. You know, yeah, they, they'll remember that more so than me cooking an amazing souffle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely. I I really love both of those and. I've said that you do so many things. I mean, you're a chef, you're a TV presenter, you've got a podcast, you've written books. What would you say kind of you enjoy doing the most and what kind of gives you the most joy out of everything that you do? I actually like the diversity of my life. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't think I would like to just do the one thing. There are times when I think, God, I wish my life was a bit more simple. Um, But I like the fact that, you know, I'm a broadcaster, I'm a restaurateur, I'm a chef. Um, I, I like all of those things, you know, I, I do sort of bits and bobs of sort of, uh, work with, a, with a couple of sort of charities and some schools. And I like that whole diversity. I think that, you know, life gives you some amazing opportunities and the more you kind of seize them, then, then, you know, then the more you get, you get out of it really. So I don't think I would be content just doing one of those things. Yeah. I like that a lot because I think that, I think when we're younger, sometimes we can be drilled that you just have to be one thing. And actually, I think especially in kind of the world that we live in now, we can combine so many different things and make sure that we're really getting everything that we need from different things that we do. Yeah, definitely. So before we go on to talking about your sliding doors moments, I want to ask you when it comes to the sliding doors theory. So the theory of everything happens for a reason, luck, timing, coincidence. What do you believe in? I think there's part of me that 
that thinks that, that you sort of go, oh, if that hadn't happened, then I never would have done blah, blah, blah. But equally, it's also nonsense because if it wasn't that, it would be something else, you know. And, and you know, that whole thing, oh, well, something bad that happened happens for a reason. And I do think that things happen to you and you take lessons from them. I'm not convinced that there's a greater force that is that is making things happen for us. I think that, you know, it's how you react to any given situation that that's really what determines, you know, the, the path that your life takes. Yeah, and that is a really good outlook because I think that, you know, whether we believe in a higher power or, you know, that kind of magic of someone somewhere writing it down and making sure that everyone's lives cross at the same time, or whether we just believe that, you know, if something happens, what can we take from it? As you said, what can we control? What can't we control? And do you think as kind of you've had more experience in what you do, you've got older, you've been able to kind of when the things go wrong or don't go on the path that you think they're going to go, you can be like, okay, there must be a lesson I can learn from this or a reason why that happened? I think it's, I think, yes, certainly from an age point of view, because you've got more to draw upon. Um, I think I'm very fortunate in the fact that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a relatively successful human being. So maybe that success also enables you to say, ah, you know what, just, just, just let it go. Yeah. If maybe I was chasing being able to afford to pay my gas bill, Maybe my attitude to it will be will be slightly different. You know, I think the confidence and ability and opportunity to sort of pick and choose what you get uptight about maybe comes from, you know, your own opportunities, your own sort of circumstances. Yeah, definitely. It can all be very relative. But no, I like that. I like that theory. And listen, we don't all have to believe in fate and timing and coincidence. But I think sometimes it's really nice to look back and see that if certain things didn't happen, maybe that wouldn't have happened. And that's what I really want to delve into today. So we'll go into your first sign doors moment. So going to Leicester Poly opened my eyes up to a whole world of opportunity. So I'm excited to delve into this one because um, I found it really interesting that you studied fashion and textiles. I had absolutely no idea that that's kind of where your kind of career started. So take us back to this time in your life and explain why it was a sliding doors moment for you. Okay, so so basically I was, I was an art student. So I did uh, French, Spanish and art at uh, A-levels. Always wanted to do something uh, connected with art and design. Uh, so did a foundation course. And then, uh, well, during the foundation course, and you'd do everything, graphics, fine art, uh, 3D design, etc. And I just fell in love with kind of with fashion textiles. Um, and so I applied to Leicester Poly, got into Leicester Poly. And I think from, I think from day one, I realized that it was the best decision uh, that I'd made up to that point in my life, really. Because um, not many, not many, Men were studying fashion textile design. I was one of only four guys on my year of sort of 95 people. Um, so I think on, on one hand, it almost kind of straight away, people were intrigued to know how you were going to be compared to mm -hmm. what was fundamentally a sort of a, a female bias course. Um, so that was exciting. You know, it was exciting to sort of to feel that, you know, there was a, there was a little bit of attention and interest. And I, was, and I was a very average student, you know, mm -hmm. I, I was, I was okay. I wasn't exceptional at all. Um, but I wanted to learn, I wanted to get better. So 
I love the way that it was structured. But I think the, the big thing, I'm sure lots of people say this about going away and doing further education. It just opened up those different opportunities and you, and you grow up. You know, I, I grew up in a happy household. It was a very supportive household. Um, and but then all of a sudden you're in a world where you're on your own and then you meet so many different people. And, you know, we, we weren't poor, we weren't rich. We had a, just a very sort of normal upbringing. And seeing the different way that people's lives have, have moved. Mm-hmm. So, for example, um, so my two best friends in the world now are my, two of my mates that I met at Leicester Poly. So my, oh, my mate really? Phil, who lived next door to me in Halls, who is a building surveyor. So completely different outlook on life. Uh, <laughs> and then my other best mate is a guy called Martin, who lives in Thailand now. And he runs a construction company. So they're just completely different. And mm-hmm. their background, so Phil is from Winsford in Cheshire. So similar background to me yeah. in terms of upbringing. Martin lives in a tiny village called Eatle on the Scottish borders. And yeah. his dad worked for the local uh, landowner. And yeah. so straight away you go, I just don't understand that. Then another of our friends, a guy called Rod, who was an expat, he lived an expat life, lived in Hong Kong all of his life, and was used to having maids, nannies, et cetera, et cetera. And within like the first month of being away, you go, wow, this is, you know, all of my mates at home were all the same, went to the same school, same kind of upbringing, blah, blah, blah. And you're suddenly bombarded with people. And I think that I've always been a people person. So I think mm-hmm. more so than anything else, going away to Leicester, it was about seeing the the world through different people's eyes. And there was another guy that we knew who one weekend we got invited to go to a birthday party. So we went to the Cotswolds. I'll get there. And we drive up this drive that takes about four hours to get to this amazing house. <laughs> Never seen anything like it in my life. And then we chat, I'm chatting to his, to his mum and dad. And it's the country house. It's not their home. It's not even their they real live in home. London. Oh this is their second home. And, you know, all those things we go, this, this, is, this is amazing. And yeah. I didn't – I think sometimes people who are confronted with those situations go, oh, it's all right for them. I found it really exciting. I thought, well, yeah. you know, I wanted to, how have you done this? You know, how have you got to this point? And, and so I think that that explosion of exposure to different people was just the greatest thing, really. And really, I really formulated my entire life, I think. Yeah, it's a really brilliant way to look at it because I actually don't get a lot of people explaining their kind of university experience like that, a way of kind of really, you know, we all go to school at the same place and we've grown up with the same people around us and we go somewhere and we're like, oh my God, there are more people in the world. And you made a brilliant point there because I studied fashion and business at university and I I genuinely don't think we had any guys on our course. And, you know, I've been in the fashion world and anytime there's ever been a guy there, they're like, oh, he can't be straight. And it's like, well, he is straight. He just likes fashion and creative and design. And was there ever a time when you kind of thought, you know, doing that wasn't, you know, did you ever kind of make the decision, oh, should I do this? Should I not? Is it a manly thing to do? Because, you know, back in the day, especially it was like that. It's really because I've never really been bothered by that. Um, yeah. It's never been something that has that has bothered me in any in any way, shape, or form. Um, I think a sort of level of single mindedness um, has sort of always been within me. Um, so I think when I started at Foundation Course, I thought I wanted to be a graphic designer, but mm-hmm. I just loved all the stuff we were doing with fashion textiles. Is what yeah. I really like. I thought, well, that that's that's what I want to do. And again having very supportive parents who said, well, that's, that's fine. Cause again, you know, I think, I think my grandmother might've said, 
he's going to study making women's clothes. So <laughs> but that's not you know, what it is. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I think that you know, yes, I can see that. But I, one, I didn't ever get any, I didn't get any kind of grief from any of my friends about it. I think because everybody, you know, I, I've always, like I say, I've always been sort of fairly single-minded. Um, yeah. So no, it, it never ever bothered me. No, I think that's brilliant. It's really good to be kind of be able to kind of know that at a young age and kind of just be like, I'm just going to go and do what I want to do. And why didn't you go into fashion and textiles to kind of what shifted after you'd kind of been at the poly? I worked as a freelance designer for five years. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah. So I used to sell um, printed textile designs to Japan, Germany and the States. Oh my God, amazing. Uh, and then I also used to uh, do hand-decorated tableware. So I wasn't a potter, but I used to decorate tableware. So we used to sell in um, Harrods, Harvey Nichols, Liberties, Bergdorf Goodman oh in God, the I'm States. God, I'm learning so much about uh, you today. Yeah, various various shops in, in Japan. Um, and then I also used to lecture part-time on uh, fashion textile degree courses and on foundation courses. Wow. So you did actually go into fashion and textiles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Ah. yeah. When we first opened Greens, because like I say you said my most successful thing was my hand decorated tableware. When we first yeah. opened Greens, I had a kiln in the cellar did to you? fire my whiteware. Yeah. Wow. Oh my so I'm sure gosh, it was illegal. But, but, <laughs> Probably. Yeah. And just don't tell anyone. Um, yeah. But no, like, especially now, because like, you know, all of those types of styles of uh, crockery are very in at the moment, you know, like people hand painted designs and that yeah. type of stuff. And do you think you kind of really got to kind of have a creative flair then at that time in your career that kind of, because obviously with anything that you do, even, you know, with a chef, you're going to have so many transferable skills that you take from that time in your life to what you do now. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I've always been a creative person. I've always, you know, I would would never, you know, my dad was a scientist and I think was always Mm -hmm. not disappointed. I always thought, I always felt he hoped that I would maybe be scientific, but not in the slightest. Neither is my sister. We're both rubbish at sciences. Um, So I think I've always been creative. So I think, yeah, there was always going to be that that level of, of creativity that happened. And again, you know, when when you're when you're on a degree course, we had some amazing talents on our course, and again, you just you just learn, and I, and I love learning as well. Yeah. You know? So I think that aside from the, the the people side of it, I actually loved it. I loved my three years at Leicester. They were three of the happiest in my life, I'd say. Yeah. And I think it's really good for people to know, because I think that especially nowadays, we feel like we have to go to uni to do whatever we want to do in real life. So, you know, I'm sure you get it as well. If people want to be a chef, they're like, I have to go and study like culinary at university and stuff. But actually, you don't, you know, you mm. can, you can, you can learn other skills. And, you know, you, I think a lot of people will be surprised that that's what you did study at university. And as you say, you did it for a long time, a little bit of time yeah. after. I, I, I am one of the biggest advocates of education for education's sake. So Mm -hmm. I think that the transferable skills that you learn as a human being are just really important. So I think if you want to go and study medieval history, you don't have to go to study in higher education with a job in mind. So you go, you know what, this is what I really love. This is my passion. I'm really passionate about medieval history. Go and do it. Who knows what happens at the end of it? Except the fact that it's not necessarily going to be the most stable career path, but you don't know where you're going to go. And surely... It's the only time in your life when you have three or four years of complete and utter self-indulgence where yes. you can you can chase whatever you want to chase and come out the other side and go, right, okay, I need to start deciding what I'm going to do with my life now. So I, I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of education. 
Definitely. And also like, if you think about that time in your life, you're actually probably going to be more successful if you're studying something that you're really interested in, you're going to throw your brain into, you know, see the limits of where you can get to with your learning and your education, rather than doing something that you don't like. I fully agree with you. I think it's a really good way to look at it. And the big question I want to ask is what if you hadn't have gone to Leicester? So I think you've mentioned there that you've kind of, which I love, I love it when people kind of have best friends because it really is that then that decision moment. If you decided to have gone somewhere else, your life would have been totally different. You know, it's not just about going to university. It's about the one that you actually specifically went to. So how different do you think things would be then if you hadn't have gone to that uni and done that course? Well, see, I think I would have always done something creative. Um, so If I hadn't done that, if I had decided I was going to go down a different path, I think I was like the idea of being a journalist. So Mm. I think that my life probably would have been uh, Preston Uni because the broadcast journalist course there is back in the day, it was like, now it even still exists now. That was a course that really uh, interested me. So that would have been the route that um, I would have taken. And again, I suppose like, you know, from a sliding doors point of view, I look at it now and think I'm really glad that I didn't do that because mm-hmm. I sort of think that, you know, that the, the experience that I had, the person that I became from three years at Leicester is the person that is, is the basis of everything that I do in my life, really. Um, and I'm not, and, but, you know, again, like I said at the start, I might well be, had I gone to Preston, exactly the same thing. You know, you'd yeah. be interviewing me now as, a, as, a, as an award-winning journalist, who knows? <laughs> yeah. Um, but, yeah, I, I certainly don't ever think, oh, I... I wish I'd done. I wish I'd done that. You know, I've, there's mm-hmm. never been a point where my option B, if you like, has ever been something that that I, I wish that I'd fulfilled. Yeah, it was definitely meant to be. I think that decision. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Worried you'll need to babysit your robot vacuum? Think again. Meet Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum with AI-powered navigation to recognize and avoid over 100 objects. It's the winner of five Best of CES awards. And Digital Trends says it boasts almost all the same features as robot vacuums that cost twice as much. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's E-U-F-Y dot And discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. So on to your second slang doors moment. So nearly going bankrupt when my daughter was one. So this sounds like a really big life-changing moment for you and something that happened at a really important time in your life. So explain to us how you nearly went bankrupt and why this was such a slang doors moment for you. Okay, so we, so we opened, first restaurant Greens we opened in 1990. Um, and then we opened a second restaurant in 94 called Felix. And then we opened a third restaurant in 94 that was called Food, which was a Pan-Asian restaurant. Big, big, big mistake. Um, so what happened was Greens was very, very successful. Then we opened Felix that um, wasn't veggie, uh, was a Mediterranean restaurant and was successful. And then we got an opportunity to, uh, we were offered a site in Fallowfield in Manchester. 
And at the time, there was a sign that Fallowfield was starting to become a little bit gentrified. So we decided we'd, we'd, we'd take the plunge and we'd do it. So we spent too much money on the, on the fit out and we were wrong. We were mm-hmm. wrong, wrong, wrong about the location. So we had a honeymoon period of the first sort of couple of months. Busy, great, really good. And what we were doing was decent. But Fallowfield didn't ever kind of take off. So very quickly, we were hemorrhaging money. Um, and then as a result of that, then the other two businesses were supporting the third one. Then the second business, Felix, also had a little bit of a downturn because we put so much focus on the business that actually wasn't succeeding. So we hit the point where um, we ran out of overdraft facility. We mm-hmm. had big bank loans. Um, equally, uh, I my daughter Flo was one. Um, Ali, my wife, had kind of like she she'd um, gone back to work. Really hates going back to work. Wants to be with Flo. So, she, so we decided that you know well, why don't you take take some time off and you know mm-hmm. and, and be a full time mum so that it means that I can work every hour God sends without trying to kind of um, yeah. coordinate childcare. So um, we hit a point where we knew we had to sell um, one restaurant of the three and ideally being the one that was hemorrhaging money. So two of them were were on the market um, and we had interest in both of them. And then the bank uh, made the decision that, uh, sorry, no, we decided we were going to sell two of them. So uh, we sold one. So we, we got a buyer for Felix, which is kind of quite easy. But all that did was kind of pay off the loan that we had for that, mm. just about. But yeah. we still had an overdraft facility and we still had another loan for the other restaurant food. So uh, the bank then basically gave us an ultimatum uh, that we, we, we had a we had a basically a sell-by date. And if that didn't sell, then they would foreclose and we would lose greens as well, uh, which also yeah. had uh, a second charge on for both of our homes so it meant we were theoretically on the brink of losing our business and our homes. Uh, I had a one-year-old daughter and Simon was recently married. And I'm not sure if his wife was pregnant then. She might have been nearly pregnant too. Yeah. Anyway, so um, it was hideous. Absolutely hideous, hideous, hideous. Anyway, so we basically, we completed on the sale two days before um, oh our, my God. our end day for the bank. Um, and I remember... I remember going home and Ali was in the front room um, holding flow. I just remember bursting into tears and saying, I, I just promise you that will never, ever, ever happen again. Um, and it was the most terrifying and also uh, life-affirming moments, I think, in, yeah. in my entire life. Wow, what an amazing, like, amazing story. I love, I mean, I, you know what I'm like, I love the whole, like, the, there were two days, the drama of it, but it's a really, really hard thing to go through. And, you know, we mentioned Greens, like Greens is still going now, it was your first restaurant. So there was a lot, a lot at stake at that thing. And how did you find a buyer? Like, did, how did that come, like, come to fruition? Well, also, we were having to sort of find a buyer on the quiet and without the buyer realising just how bad it was. You see, on the on the face of it, then the numbers were okay. It's just the fact that we was we were so in debt in terms of loans that that was our problem. Um, But, you know, to a buyer, both of them were kind of, you know, were sort of decent propositions. Felix in particular was a, was a decent proposition. Um, And it was really just on the quiet with an agent. So the agent, you know, managed to find a buyer for both. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it, it was it was really, really, really yeah. tough. And it's a real sliding doors moment because it just would have totally catapulted and changed your whole life and everything that you've done. And, you know, I, I'm sure like, do you look back at it now as, you know, it was 
it was maybe meant to be in the sense of you learned a massive lesson then of things that you've maybe taken forward in terms of taking risks and everything like that. A hundred percent. I think that, I mean, I think one of the big reasons that we, that we failed so badly on it is that one, we overstretched ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, we also were too arrogant. You know, we had one very successful business in greens and we thought we can do anything. So we opened another restaurant, which was successful. Um, and then we have the third one that wasn't. But still looking back, you look and go, we should just open more greens. We yeah. we had a you know, we, we had a perfect brand and we should have done another one of those. But again, you know, we, we were young and arrogant, and you think, well, mm-hmm. we've done that, we're successful at that, we can do it with this, and then we can do it with that. Um, so I think that, you know, that I think yes, that that is a proper sliding doors moment. I think my my whole life has been will come back to that moment, any mm. kind of, any decision that I make probably in a roundabout way comes back to that moment of going home, having sort of saved the business, possibly my house, um, you, you know, that that's the reality. But I think after it, um, I became very apprehensive about everything. Mm, um, sure. And I think that alongside that, whilst it was a terrible moment, I took too long to allow myself to to be ambitious again yeah I bet you did but I think I should have done because yeah. I don't think I, I don't think what we did was wrong Try to get back on the horse yeah I think we made we made the wrong decisions about the business but that was through naivety and arrogance but mm-hmm. in fact the, the the format of what we were doing actually made sense but I, I don't want to reveal the third one but the the second side of those moment actually led on to the third moment really yeah it did which we will talk about but I also wanted to ask you because obviously before probably when you were making all these decisions you didn't have a child yet like life was a bit different and do you think as well you realize that the stakes were kind of higher now like once you became a dad was that or did that also play into it in the sense of you know I'm sure mindset changes it isn't not that you know you were married and you still had a wife and a house but you know life is you can't take these risks in the in the same way, I think when you're a father. No, I think that I think lots of men say the same thing, and certainly it was true for me. I remember the moment that I was handed Flo after she was first born, and it was a proper penny dropping moment of kind of going, "All right, this is what it's all about," you know. Yeah. And I think men in particular, I think that we're all very self centered, and so you go, "Wow, actually, maybe the world doesn't just revolve around me. Maybe this this little beautiful thing here." This mm-hmm. is this is the whole reason for it. And in fact, I, I'm sure you get a lot of people say the birth of their children is, is a slanderous moment. And I deliberately avoided it because obviously <laughs> it is. But yeah, I think of course. If, if, if it isn't, as a human being, then you shouldn't be having children. So, you know, but I think certainly being a dad, you're right. I think that, you know, the, the risks that I made, well, we, we, we embarked on both those risks before Flo was born. And when it started to go wrong, then yes, I was a dad, and I was the mm-hmm. only I was the only income coming into the house. So yeah, yeah it was uh, yeah, it, it, it certainly influenced it hugely. Yeah, and it's a moment that's impacted so much because, as you say, I think it's ve- I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's very rare for a restaurant to have been open as long as Greens has and still be successful, really and really rare. And that just wouldn't exist if you know you hadn't have found a buyer if this moment had changed. And it is a moment of timing. A lot of things in- had to happen, you know, for for that kind of sale to go through at that time. If it had been two days later, you know, it's small little things that were very out of your control, but actually all came together to make something that, as you say, has been the pivotal moment probably in your life. And I think as well, it also, 
through everything in my life, Greens has actually been a really big constant. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's a business that continues to deliver in a consistent way. Um, and again, that, like you say, it's been, we've been open 33 years. That's, it's a very long time for a restaurant to be able and to still be relevant, um, yes. you know, which, which, which we think we are. So, yeah, I, I think, you know, that it's a proper constant in my life, Greens. I love that. And I'm definitely going to, I've never been, I need to come because I'm from Manchester. So next time I'm in Manchester, I know I'm holding my hands up. I know, I know. You know, you're from six miles away from Greens and you've never been. (laughs) I will be going now because I really, really want to try it. But I want to ask you then, and I know you're kind of, you know what the answer might be, but what, what if, so what if, you know, I mean, what if you've maybe never opened that location in the first place, but also what if, you know, this, this one moment had never happened to you, how different do you think life would be for you? Um, I think about it a lot, really. Um, I think that if I was to trace it back, then I think I, you know, I alluded to it before. I think what we should have done when we opened the second restaurant, we should have opened another greens. Um, I think that if I hadn't gone through that extreme emotion of being so close to kind of being in financial ruin, then I think maybe my decision-making and research to the nth degree on every single project that I do probably wouldn't be the same. If Mm -hmm. those three restaurants had just potted along, then I'd probably be the owner of three restaurants and probably wouldn't be sitting here talking to you now. And I'd be making an okay living and it would be fine. But I think that the person that I am, I think I would have always felt a little bit dissatisfied with my lot really. You know, yeah. I think, you know, I said at the start, you know, I'm, I'm an ambitious human being. And I think that having three small restaurants wasn't ever going to be the, the, the height of my ambition. So, yeah, I think that I, I think I would probably I would probably have none of them now if they'd all, if, you know, if they'd all, like I said, all just along. I think I probably would have got out of it and thought, you know what, I'm actually bored with this. I need to do something else. Yeah. And do you think if you'd have lost all of them, you would have gone into a totally different career? Hmm. I don't know. I think that my love for hospitality uh, will never go away, really. I think that probably, uh, I think possibly I might have sort of, might have sort of looked at it and said, okay, right, maybe I need to go work for somebody. Maybe this is the time to go and learn a different aspect of the industry. Um, So I I don't know. I, I I think I would still have stayed in hospitality, but maybe in a different way. Yeah, I definitely think you would have done. And before I go on to t- your third moment, one question I do want to ask you, which I haven't asked you, is how did you then? How did you go from you know the fashion industry to cooking? Because we haven't really touched on that. Well, well, when I was a student, like lots of students, I worked in bars and restaurants, um, and I, you know, I, I think I think it was very quickly a little itch that I knew would always need scratching. Um, and then after I'd been a designer for sort of five years, I think I got bored. I think that I'd achieved, mm-hmm. I think I'd achieved what I thought I could achieve. And I couldn't sort of see what the next stage was. So I was a one-man band. I was selling stuff. I was making a living. I was lecturing yeah. on degree courses. I didn't ever want to teach full time. But the the lure of kind of teaching, which was kind of like, you know, regular money, was like, oh, you know, and I and I got offered, actually got offered a full-time job lecturing. Thought I don't want to do that. I never wanted to do that. Um, and then I thought, well, if I don't teach, if I take that money away, I'm going to be a poor designer because I'm an average designer. 
Um, so mm -hmm. it was, and then at the same time, so Simon, who is still my business partner for, for Greens, so um, he's got a degree in French and politics from Leicester. Um, and we just started knocking around together. He was working, managing a hotel. And then he just one day, he sort of said, Joe, I'm bored doing this. And I'm, I'm bored doing what I'm doing. You know, I don't know, I don't know where I'm going to go. I'm kind of like, I think I've done as much as I can do. So he goes, why don't we open a restaurant? And it was actually, really? it was actually, it was that classic kind of drunken conversation that you wake up yeah. and go, you know what? I think this is a good idea. So yeah, that, that's how it happened. And that's a bit of a sliding doors moment because it's kind of, you know, you were both at the right place at the right time in kind of your lives and what you needed. And I love yeah. that you just took a whim to do that. Amazing. So on to your third Slanders moment, you alluded to it a bit before, but cooking on telly. So it sounds very casual when you just say it like that. But actually, as you said, you are a self-taught chef and I think you never had your sights set on being, you know, having a TV career. So explain how this happened and how cooking on TV changed your life. So, um, so after we'd gone through, you know, the, 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 the near bankruptcy, then a couple of years later, um, so 1999, 1998, um, I got a phone call from uh, one of our customers who was a producer um, at Granada and said they, uh, they were starting uh, a vegetarian cookery show. Would I be interested in going on and cooking something? Um, and I never, never harbored any ambition at all to kind of be on TV. But I thought it would be good promo for the business. You know, we were, mm -hmm. we were back, you know, we were back kind of, you know, in, in the black again and, you know, sort of thing. Okay, what happens next? Yeah. Um, so I went on and I cooked a dish on the show called Club Vegetarian that was presented by Michaela Strachan. Never done telly before. And at the end of the very first, my very first bit of telly, and she said to me, she goes, what, what other telly have you done? I said, never, this is the first thing I've ever done. And she genuinely said to me, she goes, you should think about doing this because you're, really? actually, you're actually a real natural. And to be honest with you, I, I think the thing with it was, I think it's because I wasn't trying to be anything. I wasn't yeah, trying to get a was job. Off. I, was, I was actually thinking about my business. You know, yeah. I was thinking, right, okay, this is a dish that we do. Um, you know, it'd be nice for people to see it. So then I got asked back to do that. And then I got invited to do um, a bit on regional news. Again, they would do something about veggie food. Uh, and then I started doing a regular little slot on, on the local kind of news programme. Um, and then I got a phone call from this morning um, asking to go and screen test to be one of the chefs on this morning. Um, oh so I went and did that and got the job. Um, so it, 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 it happened quite quickly so you know I was 1999 to 2000 I did this morning um and it just really rolled from there um but it it, it it's probably the most life-changing thing that I've done because it's opened more doors than I could ever ever have imagined and, and turned my world into something that I never never really thought it would be yeah. And there's such a pinpoint moment there because, you know, if you hadn't have had that customer in the restaurant call you at that time and also like not many people will probably just say yes to that opportunity. I know you say you obviously want to promote your restaurant, but going on TV is quite a big thing. And like, did, again, was it just something that you were like, I'm just going to go and do it. I'm, you know, this is just something to do. Yeah, I, I genuinely, I, I wouldn't say I wasn't nervous because I definitely was. But I think, again, I think, it's that thing about opportunity, isn't it? You, you look at it and you mm -hmm. go, well, this is an interesting opportunity. And I, I actually, I loved the process of telly from the very first time that I did it. I liked being in the studio. I liked, I wanted to know what all the people did. I could figure out what a cameraman did. I could figure out what a sound man did. Yeah. I didn't know what anybody else did. 
and I found it very, very intriguing. And I think that every time I did more of it, I wanted to learn about the process of broadcasting as much as I kind of, yeah. I, I, I still now I'm not, I'm not somebody who was on telly to be famous. Um, the trappings, mm-hmm. the trappings of being in the public eye are fantastic, but it isn't what drives me. What you know, do, that, yeah. I, I think that that's the reality. And I love how it's grown organically. I think it's a really good lesson for people in the sense of, you know, from that one phone call, you just found this natural talent that you had to do something and actually it grew on its own. People saw how good you were. And did it teach you kind of like to throw yourself in the deep end in experiences because you just never know where they're going to take you? I think so. But I think I've always, uh, I think I've always done that. I think there's something very good as human beings to put yourself outside of your comfort zone, whether that be mm-hmm. a small distance or, or a large distance. And telly's not really out of your comfort zone. It's just, it's yeah. just something different. You know, doing Strictly on telly was way out of my comfort zone. <laughs> but actually, but actually being on television isn't out of comfort zone. I'm a chef, so I was, I was doing my, I was doing, doing my craft. Or, you know, but it was in front of a camera rather than, you know, just in front of a stove. So I, I didn't find that too much of a problem. Um, but it, it was interesting that about probably about four years in, about sort of 2003, then I realised that I had a very nice second career and that that second career I found really, really exciting. You know, mm-hmm. I, I love being on telly. I was, I was doing stuff for UK Food. I was doing stuff for ITV, bits of Oxford Channel 5. So, I, I, you know, I'd sort of become somebody who was, a, you know, a, a, a jobbing telly chef, really, always with, with a little bit of work. And then the big turning point, of course, was then when something for the weekend was commissioned, which was 17 years ago. And, uh, and when did you fun- meet Tim? Uh, something for the weekend. Really, yeah. that's the first time yeah. you guys came. So, uh, right, so I'll tell you something. So for the weekend, so uh, one of the most important people in my career, uh, an, an amazing woman called Jay Hunt, um, who uh, was an executive at the BBC uh, and became head of daytime at the BBC. And she commissioned 10 episodes of something for the weekend. Um, and 17 years down the line, we've never been off air and we've even moved channels without missing a week. Um, amazing. But, Tim was not the original choice for Ooh. co-host. Right, when I tell you who the co-host is, you will go, you are kidding me, right? So you know this format of how some of the week it is. I'm really sure. The original person to be my co-host on uh, some of the weekend was Andy Peters. No, really? Yeah, who I love. Andy Peters is great. Yeah. He's a fantastic presenter. But it would have been a very different vibe. Yes. Um, but yeah, but, but Tim and I met and hit it off. You know, we yeah. had kids of a similar age. We both liked football. We were very serious about what we did, but didn't take ourselves too seriously. And I think that came across on screen very quickly. Mm. Um, and people liked the fact that we were clearly, we'd become friends. And whilst we didn't do it deliberately, in those early stages, like when you've, when you've got a new mate, then we'd see each other quite a lot, you know, because I would spend yeah. a lot of time in London anyway. So we'd go out. So on the Sundays, we'd talk about the fact that, you know, we'd been out. And people, people liked it. And who said, oh, I'd like to go out for a pint with you two. So I think that we just forged what became a, a, you know, a, a very nice relationship. So that whole thing about cooking on telly, yeah, it, it's, it's incredible. What it's done for my life is incredible. Yeah, it's definitely meant to be like all of those little things, like, again, like meeting Tim and like you guys being who you are, like, would it be as successful if you hadn't have been working with him? And it's also a moment of timing because with everything you were going through with the restaurants, you know, the fact that the, 
you know, the lady called you at the time that she'd, if she'd have called you at a time when you were going through all of the kind of challenges and stuff, you definitely would have said no to no. going on TV. I definitely would have. Yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah, there's no way I would have sort of said, yeah, okay, we're just about to go bankrupt. I'll come and cook some food. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, exactly. Right. Yeah. So I think this is definitely the path you're meant to be on. I'm making all the stars align. <laughs> I think there is someone up there concocting this for you. And what do you think, you know, if you hadn't have um, been asked to cook on TV that time, how different do you think life would be? What do you think you'd be doing now? Massive. I think I'd still own restaurants, but I think it would be very different. Um, I, 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 I think that as an ambitious person, I think probably... I, I would probably hit a point where I realised that the structure of our initial business didn't make any sense. It was too mm-hmm. difficult to make it all work because it was spread too thinly. So I think we probably would have kind of said, right, okay, look, greens is the thing that works. Let's do let's do more of those and got rid of the other two. Um, so I think I'd still be doing the same thing that I do now, but without the glamorous side of my life, if you like, really. Yeah. Um, but I certainly don't think I'd have as many restaurants as I've got now because, again, through through TV – then you know there were two sides to my business, and then you know my 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 role in if you like in the in the bigger business. You know I, I'm fundamentally a shareholder and a consultant now, but it's great to be involved in in, in a in a big big multi million pound business and be be a shareholder in that. Yeah, it's brilliant. It's a fantastic sliding doors moment. And I've loved kind of going through it with you and unpicking all those bits. And also, you never would be on our TV screen. So think about all the people that wouldn't see you every Sunday morning if you hadn't I know, done I'm sorry that. about that. I know, <laughs> poor them, poor them. Oh, Simon, it's been so brilliant. Thank you for being so honest and opening up about all of your sliding doors moments. I think they've been absolutely brilliant. And I think it's been a brilliant kind of way to look at how your life has kind of had its ups and downs, but you've learned from things. Um, and long may Sunday break continue oh bless you thank you jen i've really enjoyed it thank you so much it's been brilliant very good interview (laughs) thank you very much thanks simon thank you bye 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 thank you so much for listening to this episode of sliding doors if you've enjoyed our chat and found it inspiring i would love it if you could rate review share and subscribe thank you so much 